1: The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
0: Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today is part one of a two-part episode with Britt Hawthorne on raising anti-racist children. Britt is a nationally recognized anti-racist and anti-bias educator, speaker, and advocate, and her new book, Raising Anti-Racist Children, a Practical Parenting Guide, is coming out June 7th. It's already ready for pre-order. Link to it in the show notes. I wanted to have her on for a conversation about raising anti-racist kids and practical strategies and tools. And what happened was we ended up having such a long conversation and went completely into more personal discussions that I wanted to share with you. And so we had an opportunity to have those kinds of conversations that we need to be having as adults if we're going to raise children with a capacity to have these kinds of conversations. Today, we start off by talking about the definition of racism in this context and anti-racism, but then we get into a discussion that is actually more about unpacking gender identity and using this anti-racist anti-bias lens. These are the tough conversations to have, ones that don't necessarily have an answer, ones that don't necessarily bring two people to the exact same place, but the capacity to have the conversation and to figure out how to have it with your kids and with other adults in your life. These things are going to be such an important skill set. And so we kept it in. Part two of this episode will come out on Monday. And also on Monday, I'm offering a four-part mindfulness and parenting course. You can sign up on drelisa.bulletin.com. I'm looking forward to seeing all of you. And of course, if you enjoy this episode or want to reach out with any questions, you can DM me on Instagram at raising good humans podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. We're going to begin with what may seem like an obvious question. Britt, for the
1: purposes of this conversation, will you please define racism? Yes. And I appreciate that you started with the question racism and not anti-racism, because I usually have to back folks up a little bit. So I pay attention to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So racism in its simplest terms is a system of advantage where in the United States, white people are advantaged and people of the global majority are disadvantaged. And it's important that we emphasize systems whenever we're talking about racism.
0: Okay. So I, I want to, Really expand on this, because this is where people get so into trouble, especially at schools, especially young people. I, I don't even know why I'm saying young people it's it's I'm sure in your experience it's it's all of us. What do you mean by systems, and how is that different than what what typically people think of when they say you're racist?
1: Yeah. So we have systems thinking about any kind of institution or kind of any machine, whether it's visible or invisible to us. So a system could be education. It can be healthcare. It can be the banking and finance system. It can be housing, real estate, and so on and so forth. So all of those are systems and you can kind of think of it as like a bicycle. the way I explained it to my children is that it's a bicycle. And when all of the parts are working together to move you forward, you now have a working system. But like a pedal is just a pedal until you put it with a machine to get it going. And so all of those parts that get the bike going, it's all of us. It's gonna be any kind of our policies, it's our laws, it's our rules, it's our culture. Then it becomes the way that we uphold that. And to your second point is that racism, but really all oppression exists in four domains. But for this purpose of conversation, we're going to really focus on, on race and racism. And so racism exists both on an interpersonal level, which is where most of the conversation exists. It's a one-on-one interaction. One person did something to someone else. And so anytime you're like watching the news or listening to media or watching an inspirational movie with your child, and it's about someone overcoming racism, it oh it typically happens on just an interpersonal level. But okay. racism also exists on an internalized level. It's the things that we not only have picked up, but we also believe about the system. It also happens on an institutional level. And that's where if typically if we think about, you know, desegregating schools and the bus boycott, that's an institutional level of racism. And then it happens, and probably the hardest thing to think about. Um, and discusses an ideological level. And so the ideological level becomes the culture that we now exist. And we know it's culture whenever we no longer need laws or rules, but you just have all of us upholding these ideas and reaffirm them or make them concrete into practice. Will you give me an example of ideological? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So an ideological racism can be, the idea of what is acceptable hairstyles for the workplace or not. And so for a very, 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 very long time, acceptable hairstyles, particularly for women, but also could be for men and non-binary folks would be hair that would be a straighter hair or hair that's going to be pulled back or hair that has a looser curl to it. It's going to be, that's acceptable. And so we didn't have necessarily any kind of rules that said, this is what is professional. We all have kind of culturally agreed on a level of professionalism. And then most recently in the last uh, just five years, you've had some really fierce, rightfully so pushback saying that braids can be professional, right? Having curly hair can be professional. Changing your hairstyle can be professional. All of those things can also exist in level professionalism, and so now we've had the Crown Act where we had to create a law that said to employers, you may not discriminate against people because of their hair or hair texture or a protective style that they use um, that works best for their hair.
0: So this may, be, this may not seem like a direct line. Those kinds of ideal, ideological norms... Come into play, how can a person, a child, a parent modeling for a child participate to shift those norms?
1: Yeah. And I do think that that's a direct line because so often people think that anti racism exists in a theoretical framework or exists, you know, in in the clouds or in our hearts when so much of anti-racism actually exists in the policies that we're creating. And so by creating that policy from the Crown Act, that is an anti-racist policy. It's the active resistance to racism. It's saying that, hey, we're no longer going to advantage a group of people and disadvantage a group of people. Instead, we're expecting to have equal outcomes and we're expecting to create that through policies and procedures. And so for anti-racism, it's the active resistance to racism that we are, and that active resistance will look different depending on people's resources and access and also identities, right? So you were saying in our homes, it's not me as the parent always doing all of the work, but it's bringing my children into the work in a developmentally appropriate way. And so for in our household, racially, we all identify as Black. And for me, I also identify both as Black and also Black biracial. And so in our households, we had really explicit conversations with our children about what does representation look like in our society? What is really accurate representation? And there's a great book called If the World Were 100 People, and it's like a visual guide. And I think that makes working out of 100 makes it very concrete for children. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. And- In that book, for instance, it will talk about if the world were 100 people. Actually, I'm going to grab the book really quick because I have it. We oftentimes read it um, at bedtime, and Kobe is very fascinated with it. And we're always thinking about and looking to see if something represented accurately or not. But I'm going to turn to the page where it talks about hair color because this one makes it pretty concrete. So here it talks about hair color. And it says, you know, if the world were 100 people, 84 people have black hair, 11 people have brown hair, three people have blonde hair, and two people have red hair. So with something like that, I would start to just ask my children and be like, how many do you think, how many people do you think have blonde hair, right? And typically what our young children will say is they will overestimate the folks that are blonde. And these are naturally blonde people. And so they might say 10 or 20. And I would say, that's curious. I wonder how you came up with that. And I really want them to critically think, and children can do this as young as six years old, really, and critically think, like, how did they come up with that? And it's because there's over-representation of people with blonde hair. Even when I made my book cover for raising anti-racist children, it was interesting. That publisher was like, we have to have someone with blonde hair. And I'm like, but that's just not accurate. It's not a solid representation, an accurate representation. So once we have numbers based in reality, then you can start to make some guidelines and expectations for your children and say, okay, well, how many, when we watch a TV show, how many shows are you going to watch where the cast is all white or majority white or the main character is white? How can we balance that? And then also make sure that we are recentering people of the global majority. And in our household, we've done a number of things where we've just made really clear guidelines. We've also done activities together where we made watch lists. And so, you know how some people have like book lists of books to read. We have a watch list. And we know we're saying in the last month or in the last year, I wonder if any new shows have come out and we'll add them to our watch list. And so if I notice my children are centering whiteness a lot, I can say, hey, I wonder if you're centering whiteness a lot and I wonder if you can go to our watch list. So those are things that when you're working with young children, you both want to build awareness. You want to embrace that curiosity, but you also want to make sure you're bringing it to their level and then moving to action as well.
0: I never heard people of the global majority until you and I spoke for the first time. I'm not proud to say that, but it is in fact, true, and it sounds a little bit like the, when you're looking at a hundred, when you're looking at a hundred hair colors, and you realize, wait a second, there are three blondes, but that's you know not the impression that you get culturally and in television and movies and books and representation. So I, I wonder how you feel when people use, and I still do in academia, by the way. So when people, and I probably do and, and don't realize this, but what are your feelings about using language like minority populations?
1: So it's interesting. In anti-racist work, I think then this is probably the teacher in me that I feel like there needs to be a strong emphasis on accurate language. And so I think that there's a place, a time and place to use the term minority. And more often than not, it's not used correctly. And I'll I'll give an example. So professionally, what I do is I work with schools and I go into schools and I um, work with educators and raising awareness of what is anti-racism, but then how do we put some practices in place to make it sustainable? And when I start to ask teachers to describe their population or demographics, sometimes what teachers will say is, our school is full of minorities. And I'll say, what do you mean by that? And they'll say, the school is predominantly black. And I'm like, so is it full of minorities? (laughs) (laughs) you know, and I try to get them to like, think about that. And the same thing about, you know, when they'll talk about women and they talk about females and they'll say how we are a minority. And I'm like, "Mm, according to what data, because so often what can happen is we start to believe the scripts instead of actually being in reality of what exists today. And when we believe those scripts that are wrong, it doesn't allow us to move to action in an appropriate way. So for me, I just, I don't use the term minority, even though I think that there can be an accurate way to use it. Instead, I prefer the term minoritized as a way to say that a group of people are being mistreated because of an identity. And that is never okay. Because what I can hear people will say is, but they really are the minority in a group. And should we have to cater to them? That would be in conflict of being inclusive. And if our goal is being inclusive, then everyone should have the ability to be affirmed and to feel welcomed and have a sense of belonging in a space. And that group of people are being minoritized because they're minority and that's just not acceptable.
0: Before we continue this conversation, we're just going to take a quick break so I can tell you about my sponsors. I recently received my Helix mattress and it's fantastic. It was so quick and easy to unbox. I mean, it actually came in a box and I can't believe how great it is for sleeping. And Helix has a sleep quiz. It takes two minutes and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everybody's unique and Helix knows it. So they have several mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattress is great for cooling you down if you sleep hot, and mattress is great for spinal alignment to prevent morning aches and pains, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. So if you are looking for a mattress, take the quiz, order the mattress that you're matched to, and it comes right to your door, shipped for free, and truly just in a box, a manageable box, so you don't ever need to go to the mattress store again. Just go to helixsleep.com humans. Take their quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering up to two hundred dollars off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at HelixSleep.com/humans. My sponsor, MyFeels, wants you to think about what it would mean to you if you knew that your child had started to build confidence and self-esteem from the earliest ages. My Feels is an emotional intelligence program for kids created by a mom and a clinical therapist, and it's backed by science and uses evidence-based tools. So when kids understand how they feel and they have language to understand their emotions and recognize the feelings of others, when they have self-talk when things don't go their way and they understand how to listen to their bodies, they do better and they do better understanding others. So visit EmotionalIntelligenceForKids.com for a limited time to get 50% off when you use the promo code HUMANS at checkout. That's EmotionalIntelligenceForKids.com, promo code HUMANS. And they come in these adorable cards that are such inclusive characters. Go to EmotionalIntelligenceForKids.com to get 50% off with the promo code HUMANS. Visit EmotionalIntelligenceForKids.com and use the promo code HUMANS. And right now, if you go to EmotionalIntelligenceForKids.com to get 50% off with the promo code HUMANS, visit EmotionalIntelligenceForKids.com and use the promo code HUMANS to get a limited-time offer of 50% off the program exclusively for the listeners of Raising Good Humans podcast. You mentioned when people say, you know, but factually, this population is part of the minority. So why should we, I can't remember the exact words you just said, but Mm -hmm. I think we've heard that thought that said that plenty of times. And I wonder sometimes if the approach that when when you hear that from a kid, because I really am more interested in, when kids say it, there's something different about it than mm-hmm. when adults say it. There's something so genuinely curious versus kind of trying to make an argument mm-hmm. that kids just really are trying to make sense of things. So I wanna give you an example that isn't race, it's gender, but it was it it illustrates this in a way that I would be curious how you would respond and I'll, I'll tell you what it is. And if you think it's not useful, I will cut it out of this particular part of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So in a new sex ed book at school X, we'll call it school X, there was a page that addressed pregnancy and it showed a pregnant woman and a pregnant man because this book, and I think this book was Really, trying to be a change maker for our views about gender norms and all sorts of things that really have not occurred to adults writing books on sex ed for the past since there have been sex ed books. But the schools that have this book, and I'll the you know, the the case that I'm talking about in particular, They just sent the book home to the third through sixth graders and assigned the pages to read with no comment or nothing. So of course, kids were confused. How can a man be pregnant? The sixth graders understood very clearly. This was referring to someone who was a man, but born with women's body parts, had a uterus, got pregnant. And that is what they meant by a man can get pregnant. But the third and fourth and fifth graders were so confused. And what I was curious about in that moment, and the reason I thought of it is because you were saying when people say, well, how how can we be inclusive of of everybody and everyone's experience while not alienating an experience of the majority, in this case, women who are pregnant? And I... I felt like that was really tricky because I thought, how do you honor what is considered this very female experience and not take away from this thing that so many women, that's just been historically like women have been pregnant, not all women, but women have been the ones to be pregnant and it's kind of this heroic magical thing. And now we're saying of equal weight in this picture, there's a man or a woman. And I listened to kids talk about this and I was fascinated because what a great moment and step to say like, Hey, let's rethink this. And yet I definitely had the reaction of, are we taking this away from women right now? And I've never experienced that in race, like with race or. Anything that really felt like othering, this was the first time where I had the instinct to say, wait, wait a second. Can't there just be like a little asterisk that says, in some cases, this is possible? But for the majority of people, this is a woman's experience. And I just was curious. I don't know what, I don't even know what my question is, but I feel like that was an
1: example where I hear your question. Great, thank you. I do. I I hear your question, and my brain now is firing. And first, I want to acknowledge you for sharing a personal story and trusting me with that personal story to kind of move through that and process through that. But I hear the question, and to me, it's several different questions you're kind of laying on top. It's like number one is how do we know when we are going too far? And is there a place that is too far? Number two, It's how do we make sure that we are honoring and acknowledging and affirming everyone without taking space from a group of people? We want to make space, but we don't necessarily want to take the wrong space. And then number three, there's a question somewhere in there that has to be about trans existence, but yet you're not necessarily naming it so much. So... I mean, thank you for
0: all of those, because that is those are exactly what the questions are. They're really hard to ask. And I don't think that I really appreciate that you just interpreted that so well. And you're right. It wasn't school
1: X. It was my experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you said it made me uncomfortable, right? You're like, it made, and you owned it. You're like, it's the first time. So I knew I was like, okay, I really appreciate that because I don't think we Model this enough of like when we share our own stories or we take that for granted, what that's like. Okay, so I'm going to try and backtrack and process through this with you a few different ways. One, I think that means that whenever that kind of ping shows up in our body, which usually our body gives us that indication first, for us just to kind of uh, be able to name it and say, oh, this has made me feel differently. And let me try to name that emotion. And then from there, try to get clear about why, right? And you can even, I think, model with your children to say, like, I don't know why this is bringing me discomfort. I really need to unpack this. Gosh, Mm -hmm. right? And you can model with that. You can model that we are not some warriors of knowledge and we're not all knowing, all being people. No one will ever be. And sometimes information brings us discomfort. And how do we move through that? Next, I think it's important to start to, if your children are older, I would say around nine years old, you can even invite them to process with you, right? Because they are also keepers of knowledge. And so they have information, and you can say, This is what I'm thinking. And and I wonder if you have any challenges for me. In our household, I've had to do a lot of my own personal work, both on what is gender and what is sex, because even to this day, I conflate the two and I have to catch myself all the time of what does it mean to have certain reproductive organs or chromosomes? What does that mean? Both about who you are, your experience through the world, and then the language I use for you. And I'm going to give you a quick example. The other day, Carter in his health class, Carter's our 15 year old uh, son. And in his health class, he was saying how women, females have a lower, I'm probably going to get this wrong. So the audience can correct me, but they have a lower blood alcohol. What is that called?
0: You mean their tolerance, their, yes. the, they, their blood alcohol levels increase faster.
1: That's right. And I had said to him, is that sexist or is that proven like through anatomy? And he said, I asked my health teacher the same question because I knew you were going to ask that <laughs> because we're so, you know, we couldn't believe these scripts. And he said, because women typically have like thinner blood vessels and also have less muscle mass that the right. blood then can go through. And I said, okay, I'm glad that we actually know that that is a sex conversation and not a gendered conversation, right? And so having even questions like that where you can check each other of is this a sex conversation or gendered conversation and him and i were playing with that language between biological sex and assigned sex and he asked you know are we are we taking it too far and my response to him was isn't it amazing that we are humans and that we have the ability to go far and like we can think about things and like our hearts can expand and our minds can expand and our thinking can expand And isn't that amazing that we can lean into that and that we don't have to be pigeonholed to binary thinking? And he was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. I said, yeah, that is neat. I want to name just how transphobic of a society we live in. And I'm speaking as a cisgendered person in this conversation. And I think about all of the gender affirming surgeries that cisgender people have. And people have very little judgment about gender affirming surgeries. And usually if it is any kind of judgment, it's just about money people are, make, are spending on them, right? But cisgender people all the time are maybe you know, getting a nose job or breast augmentation or could be doing lipo or hair transplants or cab implants and you name it. But then when it becomes a trans person wanting to do a trans affirming surgery, which we know they trans folks having gender affirming surgeries, Saves lives. Then all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't we think we should slow down? That seems very serious. And all of a sudden, paternalism sneaks in as if we know what's best for another human. I think in this conversation, it's kind of the same thing. I think that there's some transphobia sneaking in. And I say that because we easily could just have language that says people who get pregnant and people who have babies and have gender inclusive language in that way because truth be told it's that not all women have the ability to get pregnant and all and not all women have babies either so a lot of times we talk about it as this very female or woman, ex- woman experience when we also have lots of women that are struggling to get pregnant to conceive to carry a baby full term and to birth a baby and so even that of like saying women and trans women still is like, but wait a minute. So I think like we could even just kind of, if I can push your thinking a little bit farther, I'm just saying people who have babies, people who get pregnant and not necessarily get bogged down in the details of who I'm creating space for, but how am I affirming multiple experiences?
0: I like the idea of by the way, this is so hard for me and we're meant to be talking about it. And I, and I think it's all connected. So I'm really thrilled that you're willing to unpack this with me, but I do feel like, mm, I'm still, I have this bubbling over of, I completely get the idea of trans women having babies, being pregnant and women being pregnant. I totally get the idea that there has to be so much pain for women who
1: you can't. know what? Sorry, Can I interrupt. No, I want to interrupt because I just realized when you said it back to me, trans women, that I misspoke and that it's trans men.
0: Right, because the trans women. Is yes. a, right. There was no. There's no controversy about trans women. You're talking about trans uh, men, which is the yes. part that. Right. Okay. So that being said, well, that changes a little bit of
1: my response. I know when you had said it, I was like, wait a minute, something about that now doesn't sit right with me. And I said it wrong, which again, I mean, it. if you want to cut this whole section, you can or not. And it can be a really beautiful conversation of two cisgender folks like working through their shit of like trying to figure out and unpack decades, <laughs> decades of like transphobia, the language we've picked up. And yeah.
0: That's so funny that you say that because I was like, this is so, I mean, this is where I'm so stuck that I'm like, how can I even share this conversation with people? But maybe, maybe the right thing to do is to acknowledge this is hard shit Yeah, and it's never going to move forward if we can't acknowledge what we don't know, what we don't understand, what we're confused about, what we're willing to open up about and what has historically been a huge problem. But what I'm really noticing, Britt, is that I am more comfortable, which is kind of shocking because I'm still not comfortable talking about race, but I feel so much more comfortable talking about it. Whereas in this conversation, I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, but what about like with the acknowledgement of the, the, Probably quite painful pressure of not feeling woman enough
1: Mm -hmm. if you can't
0: have a baby, or if you had a C section instead of a vaginal birth, like there's, Mm -hmm. or you couldn't breastfeed. Like there are so many parts of womanhood and so many assumptions that are so painful if you can't. I mean, I remember the whole reason why I breastfed. I mean, I loved it, I thought it was a really big part of what was good for my particular experience. But I think much of my commitment was about the fact that I had a C-section and I didn't feel like I really did the whole mom. Like I didn't, mm. I wasn't a woman enough to have this vaginal birth. And that's like a whole other conversation. But then I also, to your second point, which is how do you give space for this inclusion without taking away from the experience of in this case women. I also feel this anger about like what what is it, what it feels like as a woman to just say like, but come on, like we have so little that is ours. And and like right now I know I sound incredibly like a very old woman. but we, we have so, this was like not something that I said to my child who came in to have this conversation, but in my heart, I was a little bit pissed because I was like, damn it. Women have so little to say like, we are (laughs) sheroes. Like we can do this magical thing. And now celebrating that as a woman is of equal weight to a man who's pregnant in this picture. Like that experience is now not about sex. It's not about gender. It's about including everyone who is able to get pregnant. And I felt angry. And I don't know, I I don't know, but my hunch is that those feelings are very similar to feelings people get when they have conversations about anti-racism work.
1: Yeah. And it's because you're so tied to your woman identity, you're so tied to it. And, and it's interesting. And this can happen with groups that have experienced large amounts, generational centuries of oppression of then we find characteristics or parts of us that make us feel very proud, right? That it like kind of, we then have a pride about that. And I think about that, like in the black community, for instance, right? It's this idea that because I'm black, I can Sing or dance or you know play sports or something, and to be very proud. And then what has happened very recently with the explosion of TikTok, for instance, right? And now you have white folks that are not only stealing dances from Black TikTokers and TikTokers of color, um, but then they're profiting off of that, right? And it's but then there's this other kind of discourse that's happening of oh my gosh, you can dance and you're white and it's a confusion, right? Or like you can cook and you're white and there's a confusion. It's because for so long we've been steeped, centuries steeped in stereotypes that we've also believed. And someone earlier today on a call had said, use the language melanated and non-melanated people or melanated challenged. And Mm -hmm. I was like, that's, everyone has melanin. Some people have more melanin, less melanin. Right. But there's like these things that we've kind of picked up and then we've created identities around and then we've tried to solidify that. And then when it feels like someone's maybe coming for our piece of the pie, right. we have to remind ourselves it's not a pie. Right. Right. That there really is enough room for as much inclusion and belonging and affirming as we create. There really is. We only limit that. And if I limit another group's liberation, if I limit another group's inclusion, I have to know that I'm really at the core only limiting my groups too. But when I create that inclusion and say, hey, there's enough room for you too, like, come on, right? Then it actually allows us to collectivize in a really beautiful way instead of being disjointed and disconnected. I can also be in reality about the real discrimination that my community Faces and experiences. And I also can be in reality about the discrimination another community experiences too. And so for me, if it's a shift of language of saying, you know, people get pregnant, people have babies, and if that's not only going to destigmatize trans folks and challenge transphobia, but I also know that that's saving lives. And I'm like, that's all I have to do. And it doesn't actually take anything away from my experience or existence. I'm like, I can do that.
0: Here's the deal. We're all a unique mashup of our favorite things. And there are so many different ways to express yourself. I am an eyeglass wearer. You have seen me on Instagram. I'm always in glasses. Can't really see (laughs) it all that much without them. And you can make them so individualized and have a little bit of fun with customizable prescription glasses from Pear Eyewear. You know, if you're in the mood for tortoise shell look, they've got that. Sometimes I want just clean black glasses. Sometimes I want metal. It really depends on my mood, what I'm wearing and how I'm feeling. And glasses really have become part of my accessories. Pair Eyewear's base frame and magnetic top frame combination makes it easy to switch up your style. The base frames start at just $60, including prescription lenses. That is so affordable compared to what's out there. There are hundreds of top frame designs to match whatever base frame you choose. So you can change your glasses like you change your clothes. A pair for a pair is the best part about this company. For every Pair purchased, Pair provides glasses and vision care for children around the world. Get glasses as unique as you are. One Pair, infinite style, starting at just $60. Go to paireyewear.com slash humans for 15% off your first purchase. That's 15% off at paireyewear.com slash humans. So parents are busy. There's just no question our days get so busy and cooking every day is just really hard to pull off. So we know what we're supposed to eat, but it can be tough to make time for shopping, meal planning and prepping and cooking. And that's why for me, it is pretty awesome to get Splendid Spoon because they send delicious plant-based meals and snacks right to your door. It's ready to eat food designed to fit into your busy schedule instead of taking time out of it. Splendid Spoon meals are shipped right to your door ready to eat and you only lift a finger to press start on your microwave. You just have to heat them up. Splendid Spoon fits into any schedule and there's a meal plan for everyone and every meal is customizable so you get what you want every time and don't have to waste. Every single meal is 100% plant-based, gluten-free, and GMO-free. And it's always made with plenty of vegetables, legumes, healthy fats, whole grains, and spices from all over the world. My fan favorite is the vegan meatballs and marinara noodles. They also have plenty of smoothies, grain bowls, soup bowls, and noodle bowls for you to discover. And with over 50 choices and a constantly rotating menu, there's always new dishes to try. Try Splendid Spoon today and take meal planning off your plate. Just go to SplendidSpoon.com slash humans for $50 off your first box when you subscribe to Breakfast, Lunch, and Reset Plan or the Breakfast, Lunch, Dinner, and Reset Plan. That's SplendidSpoon.com slash humans for $50 off. I really appreciate this because I have no answers. Now I just really want to think through it in, in a different way. Is there room then to say separately. So let's say I think, well, if this can save lives, yes, that is no skin off my back (laughs) whatsoever. (laughs) But then is there also space to take pride in your identity? And in my case, let's say I'm really, like I really identify as a woman. Is my Pride in that identity and my womanhood or my feminism without intersectionality, is that the problem?
1: And this particular conversation, no. And the only reason I say this particular conversation is because I don't want anyone to transfer that to a white racial identity.
0: Totally. Which... And thank you for saying that. This is <laughs> so not about that, although we will go into that, but that is not... So I appreciate yes. you're making that distinction.
1: Yes. And and I want to say why because people hear that and they're like I, can't, I why can't I be, you know, proud to be white, which it's so interesting. I had did a I did an Instagram post and I can't remember which post it was. Maybe it was the post about when your child says that's racist or Yes, maybe, I remember was that. that. <laughs> was it that? And so many I can't remember but anyway, so many people, I had said something, I said like a one line about that, about whiteness isn't something to be proud of. And people really got stuck on that. And so it's, you know, being able to tease the difference between being, having a racial identity and an ethnicity or a cultural identity, right? And no one is not saying you shouldn't be proud if you are Italian or Irish or Swedish, like be proud. But the white racial identity has a particular history that it was socially constructed in order to wound, exclude, and dominate, right? It it was created literally for the purpose of domination. And so that one has a fraught history. But being proud of being a woman, I think that you absolutely can be proud to be a woman. And and I'm going to challenge you and say, I think that you know that you're very proud of being a woman when, again you're saying, this is who I am. I'm proud of who I am in our experience and our existence and our contribution to the world. I'm proud of the ways that we have overcome obstacles that have been socially and economically and politically put in our way and that we just continue to bust through those. And I know that I'm really, really proud when I can work in solidarity, and that's to your point of intersectionality, when I can work in solidarity with other groups, right? Because It's not about my group being on top. It's not about superiority. It's not about domination. You know, it's not saying that I want to be the oppressor and oftentimes white feminism. When you hear some of the mainstream language of white feminism, what I hear is, oh, you're just upset that you're not on top dominating or oppressing people, right? It's not the kind of language that oftentimes when we follow uh, women of color feminists, that are saying, how do we collectivize and work together because our liberation is tied together?
0: I just have to say, I'm so, I really should have called you when it happened. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, you know, it's like when you're trying to be the parent who is supporting inclusivity and supporting all of this hard work that we all are doing hopefully or trying to do or thinking about doing, or if you're listening to this particular episode, it's definitely on your mind. And yet I found myself kind of bubbling over with just a feeling that I had never had before in that way that I, I could imagine is that feeling that I'm appalled by when it's an anti-racism conversation and so I just was like, oh, I'm having so much trouble. And then I wanted to understand it. But I really, so I really appreciate that. Not that I still have come to terms with it, but now I have a different way of looking at it. Absolutely.
1: Um, and, and I also want to say, this is, you know, I have this pyramid of accountability where it talks about being like an active ally, and then you can move to being an accomplice and then a co-conspirator, Right. And I always tell folks, like, depending on the conversation, you're going to be in different places, depending on your own kind of word bank and your resources and knowledge, right? And so whether we're talking about gender identity or sexual orientation or a socioeconomic status or ability, like, we're all going to be in different places, and so even me, like I'm stumbling through this conversation of gender identity, but I also think it's important for folks who experience, how do I want to say that? I think it's important for folks who can have some immunity, right? Like, so around my gender identity, because I'm cisgender, uh-huh. I have immunity in a way that a trans person won't or might not. And so I do think it's, it becomes our responsibility of how do I do this work with fellow cisgender folks to work through our shit, figure it out in a way that we're not then also causing harm and asking a trans person to educate us. You
0: identify as a Black cis female. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. So
0: in conversation with you, who's also an anti-racism educator, (laughs) so it's very different asking you to teach than just going up to a Black woman and assuming it's on this particular woman to explain to me, or my listeners, whomever they are, any of this. But when we were in the conversation about, you know, as two women, two cis women, it was different because we're not asking a trans woman or a trans man or a trans person to go through this and so it was it was like a messier little snapshot of a conversation and i i really appreciate it cuz it is utterly it is so challenging cuz hey. it's just unfamiliar
1: and i am right there with you i am right there with you and i think that when we have and i i, I would like to think but it's also not my place to say that we did or didn't I would like to think that we had a really beautiful conversation of what that looks like of one person sharing, processing, stumbling through another person saying, I let me meet you where you're at. I think this is what you're saying. This is how I'm seeing it and challenging right each other. And then by you saying at the end of and I'm not and I don't know if I'll ever you know get there or change my viewpoint, but I'm definitely open And I have more knowledge. I can make a better informed decision moving forward, right? Because I think so much of even an anti-racist conversation becomes people are like, you're brainwashing people. You're, You're telling them what to think. And it's like, no, it's saying, how do we hold different opinions, but still be in community with each other? How do I um show up like what is my work and how do i lean into critical thinking both for myself but also work with my children so that i don't continue to fall into having confirmation bias and just seek out information that agrees with me yeah mm-hmm. already held beliefs
0: yeah i mean that is how we are wired to seek out information so this work is so unnatural in that way, even though it feels like how this is the core of humanity is connecting. And yet it's so antithetical to what we're primed to, like what makes us comfortable is finding out validating information for what we already believe. Mm -hmm. And this conversation so far is not that.
1: (laughs) Um, Who knew we were going in this direction? Who knew? I hope that's something that we offer our children and and that we practice with them because yeah, critical conversations is a skill. What I've been curious about
0: or wanting so much to just shout on the rooftops is that there's so many passionately opinionated adults because their children are being educated in a way that is new or confusing to them let's say there's an anti-bias, anti-racism curriculum that's in their school and it's new, or a conversation or an affinity group or just all these new ideas for some people. And there's so much emotion that comes with it. And I wonder for kids who are watching, they're learning one thing in school, potentially, then they're coming home and they're talking to their parents and the parents are potentially just either agreeing or screaming about the idiots that are introducing horrible ideas or brainwashing or there's there isn't a lot of like interest, curiosity and open conversations happening in front of the kids. Like my dream, it maybe it is, but I haven't seen much of it. And my dream cuz I do feel like what a weird message it is for an especially elementary school age to have one community, the school, that's trying to engage in a conversation. And then your home is directly against that conversation. How can those kids make sense of any of this? Whereas if there is some productive discussion and it it it's like an acknowledgement, hey kids, you know how you think adults know everything? We actually don't and we're having trouble and we're going to do that in front of you so that you don't feel even more confused that would be to me a really wonderful addition to the discourse that's going on
1: yeah i agree and you know my experience is there are a lot more parents we think that want their children to have you know as you said deib jedi as i've seen it right like all these different kind of acronyms for diversity inclusion equity belonging justice
0: belonging Belonging is such an important part of the language in my mind.
1: Yeah. And to me, it goes back to both having open and honest communication with the caregivers. And, you know, a big hope that I have is that not only are, are educators trained when they go and they get their teaching certification on what is anti-racism, how do we embed that and integrate that in everything that we do, but how do we also communicate that? because anti-racism has some core values. And oftentimes the way that we're raising our children also have some very similar core values as well. Right. So we, you know, because the language of anti-racism can not only be trendy, but it can be, I love that. I love um, David. He's the founder of Amplify RJ always says, if you ask a hundred people, the definition of restorative justice, you're going to get a hundred different answers. And the same thing's going to happen in anti-racism. And so I think that being able to to have conversations around values, do we value collaboration? Okay, well, that's anti-racism. Do we value quality over quantity? Okay, well, that's anti-racism. Do we value relationships, right? And being in in partnership in our relationships? Well, that's anti-racism. Do we value becoming? Well, that's anti-racism, and when you can start to then talk about values in that way, it allows us to move a conversation forward. But I think what happens is people kind of get caught in the in the weeds and in the details about something, and oftentimes conversations will kind of spiral from there. But you know, this 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 generation coming up, I think that us as adults we just got to watch out. <laughs>
0: I know. I'm so curious and so interested in how they're. I, it's so beautiful. Like things that we think are so complex are not for them in in many ways, and that is just going to be so cool to watch.